This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's Friday, which means the weekly news panel gets together. That means Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta stopped by to share their thoughts on a few of the biggest news stories of the week. Good morning, Michelle. Morning, Dave. And hello, Joita. Hi, everyone. All right, let's jump right in. It's been a weird seven days around the halls of Canadian Parliament. The Cliff Notes version, Canada welcomed Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky for an official visit on Friday. House Speaker Anthony Rota acknowledged a special guest during the pomp and circumstance. Here's the thing. The special guest was a Ukrainian World War II veteran who fought on behalf of the Nazis. In other words, not to put too fine a point on this, a Nazi. Stuff hit the fan. The fallout, Anthony Rota resigned as House Speaker. The Prime Minister apologized and called it an embarrassment. Immigration Minister Mark Miller says the country will consider declassifying documents about the presence of Nazi war criminals in the country. Michelle, when I say cliff notes, I mean, that's the cliff notes. What do you want to explore in the historical context and this news story? Yeah, really, truly cliff notes. But yeah, it, it's a fast, it's a crazy story all around. It was clear from Sunday when it broke that this was going to be uh, a news driver for the next several days. And in fact, it has been. And the part that really kind of fascinates me now, now that we're through the immediate fallout of who is responsible, uh, is anyone going to step down? We're, we're past all that. But we are still asking questions around ultimately who is responsible around you know vetting processes for guests in parliament, which is an ongoing thing. But more than that, it's really the the... Canada's history of, of harboring war criminals, effectively, that has come back into the spotlight as a result of all this. I learned things, even in the course of editing stories about this. I had no idea about the Deschenes Commission from the 1980s, for instance. Uh, I'm sure some of our listeners do, but this was news to me, and I suspect to a lot of people. There's questions around how Canada has has welcomed and, and allowed people who took part in, in significant war atrocities to, to live free. Uh, and those records are still not widely public. So there are so, so many angles we could pursue here, but those are the ones that really stand out to me. Joita, I acknowledge there's some complexity to this story as Canada being a tapestry that does take in a lot of people from different places, including people who've lived in totalitarian or authoritarian places that where uh, sometimes you are faced with some extremely difficult choices as a mm -hmm. human. What's your perception of Canada's history in welcoming people with problematic or checkered pasts? Well, I think there's a lot can be, that can be said, but I'm just going to zero in on the fact that Canada has, as this case points out, welcomed Nazi war criminals. And uh, the first thing that needs to be pointed out there is that Canada was not alone in doing so. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I think a lot of us need to go back and look over is our history, which tells us that during the Second World War, Russia fought alongside the Allies. And then... Um, in the early 50s, and with the advent of the Cold War, Russia is suddenly on the other side. And there's a real fear that crops up in places like Britain, the United States, Canada, about communism. And so 
anti-communist sentiment really takes off in the 50s. And it's in this context in the 50s of this rising anti-communist sentiment that many countries, Canada and the others, were willing to look the other way when it came to the past of many of these Nazi war criminals. The reasons for allowing them into the country were complex. Uh, intelligence was a big reason. Uh, oftentimes, um, some of these war criminals had uh, been part of intelligence apparatus in their in their local countries, which made it easier for them to spy on the Soviet Union or even to spy in in East Germany. Uh, so sometimes it came down to uh, a desire to um, have access to the technical and scientific scientific intelligence of a former Nazi of the former Nazi regime. Uh, a really good example is the is uh, Verda von Braun, who was um, very high in the Nazi command and was later and later went on to become the head of NASA. Uh, and was basically allowed a pathway to the United States. So one really has to put this particular situation as to why it is that Canada comes to accept Nazi war criminals into the context of what was going on in the 1950s and the fear of communism. What I've, I, I have discovered in researching this particular, this particular story is that in the 1950s, the Ukrainian community in Canada was actually quite left-wing. And so there was a fear that communist sentiment would take hold within the Ukrainian community in Canada. And as a way to neutralize that, so you might also argue something of a, a calculation or a strategic, or, or some kind of a strategy went in there, but as a way to neutralize that, that, that rising, the fear of rising communist sentiment amongst the Ukrainian community, Canada was more willing to disregard the Nazi past uh, of, of, of right-wing Ukrainians uh, in order to try and, and neutralize that. So, Juita, so that, that, that's a really long history lesson, but I think what's important here is you left out two really important years, 1939 to 1941, when the Soviet Union was not fighting against the Nazis, it was a non-aggression pact, and Ukraine found itself right in the middle of that. I, I, I just want to keep coming back to some ideas here, that we can all agree that Nazism is bad, but I think we also have to understand that when somebody comes into a village with a gun and says, you fight for us or we kill your family, it can be a much more complicated complex question mm -hmm. than simply saying war criminal because for fear of being accused of whataboutism, there's a lot of people that get welcomed into this country from really problematic countries yeah. where there's genocides going on, and they may have had a part in it as a soldier, but we don't necessarily label them as a war criminal because we understand the notion of totalitarianism and authoritarianism. Michelle, you said this week has Can been I... pretty, pretty eye-opening for you. Please oh. chime in. Yeah, well, I think this circles back to another issue that's going kind to of corollary to this, but that's really come to the fore for me, and that is, has to do with education on this stuff in Canada. Yes. There, there's a whole point, to, the whole lecture to be gone on here. If you if you take a look and think about this and say, okay, hey, if there was someone in, in a, a, a Slavic military unit of some kind fighting against the Russians, ergo, they were fighting for Germany. That is how World War II worked. <laughs> like, that is actually what happened here. After 1941. And, Yes, after 1941. Yeah. Um, but that is, this is something that a lot of Canadians should have been able to arrive at on their own. 
The Speaker of the C- House. Certainly, the, so. certainly like, the Speaker of the House. Like, certainly, absolutely. if you're a politician, like, you should come to that conclusion. You should understand what's going on. You here. should know this. Exactly. And that's what I'm if, if that kind of knowledge has not percolated through into the very halls of democracy in this country, then there's clearly a dearth of, of education and history and, and real understanding of these things. And without that kind of understanding, the sort of nuances that you and Joita were both trying to get at are much, much harder to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but Michelle, Michelle, more broadly speaking, like, what is your perception of the country's history in welcoming people with problematic ha- pasts or yeah, checkered yeah. pasts? Um, well, I, I didn't realize to what degree I think Canada had looked the other way on this. And one of the, the one of the findings of the Duchenne Commission that I have found really interesting is the conclusion, and that is shaping a lot of the current discourse, is that being part of a unit itself does not necessarily constitute a war crime. Even if it's a voluntary unit, the way the Ukrainian First Division was, the one that this particular veteran took part in, uh, that is an interesting finding. And I think it is probably a nod to to get at the very nuances that you were trying to highlight, Dave, and the fact that there are complexities and why people enlist in the first place. But the fact is, there are thousands of people who are allowed to carry on their lives in Canada. And what really I think is most troubling for a lot of people is the lack of transparency around this. There's an understanding that we are allowing problematic people in here, but there's no real effort to to keep track of these problematic elements. And I think that's what is really driving a lot of the calls to reopen those records and be more transparent about this kind of thing. Now, would you limit that to simply World War II or do you start engaging in the Dave Brown exercise of whataboutism? I think you'd have to. Frankly. Yeah, I, I don't think, think you I could think limit you it to, to one too. conflict. I think yeah. I think you have to as well. I think you can't just simply look at this through a narrow lens. I think you have to look mm-hmm. at this at, at anybody you bring in. One of the issues in this conversation, though, this week is there are groups that are saying even if you've been accused without proof of being part of a unit, your name should be listed publicly. I'm not comfortable with that. I'm just not flat out. Like you can call it. It goes against our justice system. I can't imagine any government signing on to that. Yeah, that. completely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Joita. So I, I know you gave a really good history lesson there, but as you start thinking pragmatically, what are some of the guardrails or policies that can be put in place right now to prevent the issue of welcoming in people who are accused of being a war criminal or were involved in uh, unjust war units? Mm. Well, I think the most effective guardrail would be better scrutiny during the the immigration process itself, um, so that there's a little more emphasis placed on checking people's backgrounds and their affiliations before we grant them asylum or citizenship in Canada, right? So that would be the first place to go. Uh, but then also... Uh, in 2000, there was a, a a piece of legislation passed, which was the um, which was a which 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 was a piece of legislation that basically said that at this point it would be possible for Canada to prosecute uh, those who uh, were guilty of war crimes or those who had been charged with war crimes, even if those uh, even if that even if those war crimes hadn't taken place inside Canada. So. Prosecution uh, is one other uh, possibility, right? So the first thing to think about is really uh, looking at our immigration system and trying to build some of those checks into our immigration process. But failing that, then we have some tools for prosecution. And in some cases, when it makes sense to do so, we might also want to consider deportation. So those are the three things that I might be able to suggest in terms of actually putting some guardrails into place. But we have come a long way since the 1950s when Canada and other countries were willing to look the other way and 
what the Deshaun Commission did and other subsequent piece of legislation did is already put many of those guardrails in place. So it's not like there isn't anything out there. Mm. Uh, things have certainly changed a lot in the last 50 to 60 years. And when you have, uh, you know, we've had other conflicts that Canada has been involved with and uh, people have faced prosecution, especially, let's say, for their involvement in the Rwandan genocide. So it's not like mm -hmm. people are just able to put down roots here and yeah. there's no accountability. It's just this one particular instance where there's a very high profile case of someone slipping through the cracks. Yeah, Michelle, I, I think I think Joey is really onto something there. There's gotta be some really solid upfront scrutiny and there needs to be the possibility of ongoing scrutiny if accusations are brought forward, which also means there's a vehicle or a mechanism to investigate this. But I'm going to acknowledge that's extremely difficult to put in place when you're trying to investigate a war crime that occurred, you know, 20 years ago on the other side of the world. A hundred percent. And now, of course, so much more time has gone by. If we're talking about the Second World War context, a lot of the people involved here are, are well into their 90s at this stage. So that introduces another layer of complexity. And there have been cases in Canadian history where we've seen that people's problematic past have been uncovered, have been acknowledged as problematic, and deportation efforts still don't work. Uh, the name Helmut Oberlander might mean something to some of you. I'm not sure if that rings a bell for a lot of people, but there were there was a decades long effort to get him deported back to I forget which country of origin it was it was in question here because there were jurisdictional matters at play but that was in a sort of a, a litmus test of how complex these kinds of cases can be even in getting deportation with history established mm. so I think a lot of it does come back to to transparency if if we if we're going to take the stance and allow cast a really big tent for people of a whole kind of different backgrounds there has to be not only those mechanisms that you and joita talked about but there has to be some degree of, of accountability and transparency on how that's working and why and where yeah uh joita michelle i think clearly identified a, a big concern or takeaway here in regards to education a lack of knowledge about within our country about the history of World War II and maybe more broadly about some of the complexities and layers of geopolitics. My big concern here is that the Trudeau government continues to only look at things as black and white issues. They seem mm. incapable of understanding where things can live in the gray and they're willing to do all these performative things and have egg on their face over and over and it seems like they're not learning their lesson. And I think that was something you expressed a little bit last week in regards to the fights they're having with China and India, that it seems that perpetually this government only sees the world as a binary. I would say this may strike me as another example of the government simply looking at the world as a binary and not even considering context or or anything other than optics and then the egg blows up in their face. But what's, what's your biggest takeaway or concern from what happened this week? Actually, my biggest takeaway uh, was the education piece and the fact that people hadn't really factored in that... Um, if you were fighting against Russia during the Second World War, you were most likely fighting for the Nazis. And that Antony Rota, when he read his speech, much less when he rehearsed it, and his staff that likely vetted the speech and found the guest, um, that none of these people actually caught on to it, much less the hundreds of MPs who were sitting in the House and didn't realize that this is what was happening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, that, I mean, the, the education piece is a really big one because you would think that there would be an instantaneous reaction to this. Yes, of course, we can talk at length about the liberal government and the fact that, you know, 
uh, they're looking at things in in terms of black and white. And, you know, I read a really interesting headline that says, you know, is an apology enough? Is a resignation enough? What else needs to happen? I mean, these are really important questions to be asking. But the most staggering revelation for me are the biggest takeaway from this fiasco, because and I say it's the biggest takeaway because you, you got to wonder, I mean, how much are people taking away from how much are kids taking away in their classrooms or university lectures if we aren't making these simple connections? Because everybody has at some point or the other encounters the history of the first and second world war. And this was just a basic thing that someone has learned as the speaker of the house and the people sitting in the house just completely overlooked. And if, if these are people who are so plugged in and have whole, you know, oodles of staff helping them so that they don't put their foot in it and they make a mistake like this, what does it say about the rest of us? So the education piece really was the one thing that jumped out at yeah. me out of all other con out of all other things, to be honest. Michelle, I, I think you know at this point where I land on performative politics and optic politics. <laughs> I think it's basically like the downfall of our civilization. I'm at the point where forget vetting special guests in parliament for little standing applause and little special moments. It is totally distracting from like really important policy. I'm at the point where we shouldn't have special guests at all in Parliament. Like, you should just be doing the business of Parliament, and I do not care that it's boring, but I think that if uh, we are going to keep the special guests, uh, it's up to parties to, like, really put the fine-tooth comb on this and not embarrass the country like the Liberal government did this week. Because it embarrassed the country. Like, it's worse than embarrassing oh, it the country. It's shameful. It's shameful what the what the federal government did last Friday in what was a very important visit from the, pre from the President of Ukraine. Like, a very, very important geopolitical visit it. And mm -hmm. the fact that a week later, all we're talking about is the incompetence of this government really upsets me. And again, platforming people who fought on behalf of the Nazis is not acceptable. I can live with the idea of complexity and saying, man, Central Europe and Eastern Europe were a complex place in the 1930s and 1940s. But to then say, but we need to have our little special guest so we can have a round of applause. It's embarrassing. It's shameful. And it shows everything that's wrong with politics. But that's my preamble to asking. How do you think Parliament should handle special guests, Michelle? Well, uh, I... In, really, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> your your response is giving me a lot to think about there. Um, at least to Google search people, like honestly, like the, the the fact that we don't understand how any kind of vetting process works, I don't know what if anything took place here, is is very upsetting and and concerning and all this. But I'm with you, Dave. That this was a deeply humiliating event for all concerned. I cannot imagine what it was like being President Zelensky, who is Jewish. But the parliamentarians who were Jewish, who applauded this guy without knowing the context, like that's a betrayal. That That is just, I, I don't even have the words for how that must have felt. I can't imagine how it must have felt without being had that kind of background. But it's it's pretty, it's really dreadful. I'm really struck though, Dave, by your position on the blaming aspect, because that is another one that's going to be a live active thread for a while to come. You have positions digging in their heels on what ought to be a more unifying event. And, and now this is becoming a bit of a partisan game. And there's even bickering as to which committee should take a look at what happened. Because if the PMO was involved, then it has to be this committee. But if it was if it was isolated to the speakers, then it has to be committee number two. Right. Like it, it's just a whole quagmire. And you're right, Dave. There's a lot about this that just highlights everything that can and does go off the rails 
with politics in this country, but I would argue that it is not necessarily unique to any oh, one oh, administration. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. No, no, I agree. There's performative stuff everywhere that gets me uh, amped up every single day, Michelle. <laughs> don't don't you worry. This is not limited to the halls of parliament for me. Uh, Michelle, Juita, we've uh, talked about this for 20 minutes. Let's uh, put a pause on it and move on because up next, the political conversation continues, except this time in the context of the Manitoba election. It takes place next week. The three of us will explore a couple of the issues that have been prominent during the campaign. And maybe, just maybe, you'll get a prediction. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.